we're in a race, really a race for life and death here because if we don't start building, what happens is people who can't afford a single family home, they're stuck in apartments. When they're stuck in those apartments, then those rents remain high and we still, we can't get people into these new or affordable housing. Oh, we see this in our shelters as well, where they're meant to be a short-term solution and yet they have now turned out to be a long-term solution. Hello and welcome again to another episode of Sacktown Talks. Today, we're glad to be joined again by Sharon Quirk-Silva. Sharon, how's it going? Great to see you again. Great to see you. Thank it's, you for having me again. Yeah, it's, a, it's amazing. I remember talking to you a couple of weeks right before the election, talking about your race and, you know, thinking like, you know, Sharon, you finally have it made, you know, redistricting, you're in this plus, plus, plus Dem uh, district, and you're like, no, hold on a sec, like, this is going to be a close one. Like we got a lot of work to do. And I was like, really? Wow. And you were right, Sharon, you were right. It was another close one for you. Uh, but you came out ahead again, kind of, can you kind of talk to us about your, your recent election and kind of going through the, the feels again of, of being down and then coming up again? Yeah. You know, I think uh, Orange County as a whole is very mixed and people like to say a blue wave is coming or look on paper by just the percentage of oh, this is up democratic by so many points. But the truth is it's very mixed. I mean, I happen to live in Fullerton, which is the larger part of the district, but on my block, uh, you know, teachers, educators, but signs of, very, of both parties, mostly at the congressional level, uh, but uh, quite a mix. We know that when we're knocking at doors, you can have households that are mixed from uh, not only Democrats to independence to Republicans within the same household. So we uh, definitely have found that uh, this is a district that has to be worked hard, uh, but the new part of the district, which was uh, now goes into Los Angeles, that was definitely new for me. I think that had a lot to do with me getting to know uh, new neighborhoods, Cerritos, Artesia, and Hawaiian Gardens. And uh, in, in fact, we ended up doing better in those areas, which tells the story of Orange County. Orange County is still a tough place for a Democrat uh, to be elected and stay elected. Yeah, that's the interesting thing. I remember you're, you're talking about like, yeah, the statistics show that we're up, but you actually get to have to get those people to vote. And can you kind of talk about like, you know, getting people to turn out and actually turn their ballots in? Right. And what we saw, you know, 2020 was pandemic. So none of us were out at the doors. And uh, then in 18, we had a race that we were out there. But when you put four years in between and then add a new district, it means you have to run a full campaign, which we in fact did do. But there were a lot of people telling us, oh, no, you're going to be fine. You're good. Actually, uh, really pushing us to spend some time in other areas on other people's candidates. Uh, campaigns where we really pushed back and said, no, we have a race here. We've got to do the work here. And uh, we're really proud that we did it because the numbers may have looked much different. We did drop uh, election night about midnight by two votes, not 2%, but two votes. Right. And then every night after that, we moved up. So we ended up fi finishing uh, well above uh, 7,000 votes or close to 53%. Yeah, it's interesting. We, we recently had 
uh, Melissa Hurtado on. She just squeaked by by 12 votes. And, you know, the Christy Holstedge race uh, kind of flipped the other way just by a few few votes. Can you kind of talk about being a candidate and being in one of these close races and just kind of walk like waiting and seeing the results? You know, what is that like? Well, I think you start to get an indication now um, before uh, the race. And we saw that in my district, uh, one of the nuances that people just don't pay attention to, it is a growing uh, API district or Asian Pacific Islander district. And I did have an API candidate, a woman Korean American. And we saw that the overlay of my district that had a congressional race that was one of the top races in the country with Michelle Still and Jay Chen, them right over my district, that we knew that those votes uh, in the API Korean American community were coming in. We saw that two weeks before uh, uh, at a high rate. We also saw that um, lagging and coming in slower was the Latino community. And this is something that we've seen over the years and they do need more touches. They tend to be voters who might send in their ballot uh, the last day. Uh, and that's exactly what we saw, which was uh, initially we were up, then we had that drop. Uh, and then as all of the ballots came in, either mail-in ballots uh, that were either posted that day, we continued to move up. Uh, but uh, the Korean American voters were voting at a very high percentage. You know, I, it's interesting. Um, you know, I've seen on Twitter, you talking a lot about kind of churches and churches putting up signs and stuff like that. And, you know, there's this whole new kind of like ballot harvesting thing going on where, uh, you know, you have unions and things like that, um, you know, gathering ballots, but now you have kind of like churches getting involved. Can you kind of talk to that about kind of, you know, where, where the lines are on kind of, you know, free speech and kind of, you know, you know, churches supporting candidates and things like that and kind of the tax implications. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yes, I think, it, you know, it's always been there. It's just maybe not as profiled. I think was, what was shocking to me uh, uh, was not the harvesting. We've seen that before. And if you follow uh, Sean Still, the Republican um, uh, husband of Michelle Still, the new congressional member, and again, the same overlay as my district, uh, they talked very um, excitedly about harvesting ballots and how this was really part of their key. What was shocking and is not acceptable is putting uh, political signs on their property. Uh, and we saw this, we have pictures. Uh, there was, I think a blog that wrote, oh, she doesn't complain about this if it happens at school. Schools, I've never seen schools with uh, uh, political signs, but to have churches doing that because of their nonprofit status, it is concerning. Um, we are going to be looking into that because certainly within the law, you can harvest ballots. Some people don't agree with it. Other states don't allow it. Um, but um, when it comes to um, using the property and so forth, that's another story. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, you, your new district is probably the most entertaining district in the entire state. You have, you know, prominent theme parks, casinos, racetracks. Can you kind of tell the, the listeners about, about your new district and kind of what's in there? Well, it, yes, it's very exciting district. It's, uh, you know, we're the home of Disneyland and now Disneyland is part of my district. Of course, part also includes Knott's Berry Farm. Uh, in addition to that, many hotels, uh, Hawaiian Gardens, which is one of the smallest cities in the district, is home to. Uh, one of the card clubs, and that 
card club, in fact, is 80% of their revenue. So this oh. means a lot to the community, but it also means a lot uh, in, a, in uh, a greater um, level when you start accumulating where those dollars were. I was the arts and entertainment chair uh, during COVID, which I have to tell you was one of the, the, the most difficult right. time to be chair when you have Disneyland closed for 150 days or more. Uh, you have hotels closed, you have wedding venues. Uh, so we worked really hard in that space. Uh, and uh, But it is definitely a fun place. Uh, so come on out to Buena Park, to, to Anaheim. And uh, it really is festive, especially. And there's a lot of free activities as well, walking in downtown Disney. Um, so you don't have to have a huge budget to enjoy some of the festivities. Yeah, 8065 is the place to be, definitely. Uh, but now it's 8067. Oh, 67. Sorry, 67. Yes. Definitely. Um, you know, we just started a new session, a new member sworn in. And, and one of the first orders of business was this governor has declared this special session on windfall oil profits. Kind of what are some of the things you're, you're hearing about this session and some of the things that, you know, you personally are looking into for your district? Well, I definitely think the um, uh, governor's extraordinary session in I don't know if you noticed those very large words on the floor that was that we were commenting on that. Uh, but we will continue to talk about, of course, gas prices, energy, solar, wind. That is part of California. We have very invested members going uh, worldwide now to the COP um, convention, being on panels. So I still think there will be a lot of this. We, of course, passed the historic climate package. Uh, but I still am very much, we need to be able to give our constituents choices. So although I support um, us focusing on climate, we also wanna make sure that if it, electric is one part of the package, that we also look at other alternative fuels like hydrogen. Uh, we are still a long way from, and I look through the lens of a mom as I had, my, my children are all adults now, but at one point I had four kids going to different schools and had to get them to figure out how do you plug in, how do you charge, where you have to go. Exactly. Those are all, um, you know, could be a very much a barrier to this new uh, way to move around. So making sure we get that grid up, making sure that um, how do renters plug in, all of these issues. Uh, but certainly I support uh, some of the climate. Locally, one of the things that uh, I've been uh, really starting to uh, want to look towards some legislation on is this is our tree canopy. Some cities are blessed with just beautiful trees that really keep the temperatures down right. in their cities, but you can go across the street or even next a few blocks. And if there are no trees, it could be 10, 15 degrees uh, hotter. So I'm going to really look into that because sadly, there are some people who don't want trees because they drop you know, this blossom or that blossom, and they just are cutting them down. And so I want to see if there can be much more of a process before we just cut down these incredible trees. Yeah. You know, as you shared before on the podcast, you know, homelessness is a very personal issue for you and something that you've focused on uh, in the past. And of course, you guys went to great lengths last year, the governor with his care courts kind of, um, you know, wh when are we going to start seeing progress on homelessness and kind of what more needs to be done to kind of achieve you know, the goals we've set out? 
That's a great question because I kind of hear it in your voice a little bit. And I feel the same, you know, there's been so much effort and focus in uh, intentional work on this area. And yet for many, they still don't see any results and it continues to be something that it's complex. Um, it's an area of frustration for myself. I just saw, you know, on Sunday that uh, Karen Bass was sworn in as the Los Angeles mayor and new mayor, first woman. Uh, and her first step is to uh, ask for an emergency declaration on homelessness. And to be honest, I think she's right on track. I think we should be treating homelessness the way we uh, treated COVID. Uh, we were able to bring out tents. We were able to bring out places for people to um, get into hundreds of people to be treated through the COVID. If we can launch that kind of response, I think we need to do this uh, in response to homelessness. There's been billions of dollars spent. We've had some success. It doesn't always show, uh, yet uh, we have to do more. We know we're uh, reaching the end of some of the COVID relief packages. And my fear, and I think with a lot of others, is we're going to see even more uh, homeless. Those numbers are going to tick up. So um, I think we need to continue really? to do anything and everything. Wow, that's something to keep ticking up and up. It seems like, you know, we've hit a point where they can't go up anymore, but yeah. Guess you never know. Uh, something that always goes hands in hands with uh, homelessness is its housing. That's something that we've heard ad nauseum. It seems like for four or five years. Kind of what what are you seeing? Are you seeing any improvement in the housing front in your district? And kind of what more needs to be done to kind of get us where we need to be? Well, I think you've seen from last session the legislators being bold and uh, really moving forward. AB twenty eleven uh, that was uh, authored by. Assemblymember Buffy Wicks, but also supported by myself in the Housing Committee. That was tough legislation. It split your trades and labor groups with your carpenters, uh, kind of a friend's fight. But the point is we have to get further with housing and some of the barriers have been, uh, to be honest, many times, and I know my local elected friends really get mad at this, but sometimes it is local government uh, continuing to say no, you know, they get a project that's moved through on a planning commission, it gets to the council, they have people show up, no, we don't want this project, not in my backyard type of um, um, stories or narratives, and then the project is denied or turned back, which then adds a year or delays the project altogether. We continue to talk about the lack of housing production, and Every time we talk about it, we're looking for this housing production. I think we're starting to see cities tick off small units, 20 units here, 40 there. Right. Um, but we have, we're in a race, really a race for life and death here, because if we don't start building, what happens is people who can't afford a single family home, they're stuck in apartments. When they're stuck in those apartments, then uh, those rents remain high and we still we can't get people into these new um, or um, affordable housing. Oh, we see this in our shelters as well, where they're meant to be a short term solution. And yet they have now turned out to be a long term solution. Some people being in shelters for two, three years. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I've, I've never heard, you know, you always hear like housing and homelessness and you're always like, well, how can these homeless people afford a house? Is that really the issue? But that, that really kind of helps explain it where, you know, basically you have this backlog, right. Of people who can, you know, can't get into a house because they're in an apartment and the low-income apartments are full. So that, that really helps explain kind of, you know, the backlog we're facing here in California. And I actually, we, we did a housing tour. I don't know if you recall that, not this fall, but last fall. And that really came out um, of that housing tour, which is, uh, you know, whether it's a couple who's married or uh, uh, partners, they're sitting sometimes making well over $100,000 uh, and could afford that entry level home. And yet, because of production, we don't have that home. And they sit there, uh, which would typically have been maybe moving into their first home somewhere towards, you know, 27, 28, 30. And now, they're still in an apartment well after the age of 30. Right. You know, something is, is, you know, you hear a lot is, you know, the prices of homes are, are so high, uh, you know, down payments and things like that. Has there ever been, you know, I know some cities and local governments have like down payment assistance programs. So that's something that you've ever looked at for, you know, a statewide program. Uh, we have, and we did vote on a package for last year for first uh, time homeowners. Um, I don't have the figure with me, but it was pretty substantial to help uh, individuals with their first time um, uh, purchasing a home. We also voted on a package, I do know I, it was $50 million, and that's for single family homeowners that want to build an ADU. And uh, this grant that would re be received would be $40,000 uh, for uh, the permits and for the architect, which oh, wow. again is one of the barriers to building right. an ADU because you have to have those plans. Some cities are even uh, have what they call shelf ready plans. And Encinitas is one of the cities I know where you can just go in. There's, you know, a ADU plan for a one bedroom, two bedroom, different little models. You choose that. You don't even have to go through planning. You go straight to your permits. So I do think there's some bright spots and there is some financial support. As a matter of fact, because we've been interested ourselves, there is a lot of interest in social media, media on this. So for example, there's a Facebook uh, group for ADUs and they will show you how to help get permits, how to find contracts. They'll show you, um, and, and even with this grant application through the state, there's a tutorial on how to apply for that. So there's definitely interest in ADUs, or uh, for those who don't know ADUs, we're talking accessory dwelling units, or another way to call it, a granny unit, or granny, uh, that's what they right. used to call it, mother-in-law unit. Right. Uh, but it's, it's basically a one or two bedroom property on your own single family. And there's, the state has worked extensively in this area to clear the barriers, parking issues, um, all of these issues. So we are seeing more permits across the state of California. Oh, that's great. That's great to have that, that information too. Cause you know, you guys pass so many bills, you know, and somehow the information doesn't get out to people. So that, thanks for sharing that. Uh, that's good info. Uh, you know, as we talked earlier, you know, your background is in education. Uh, you know, you're a teacher. And as we see, you know, your, your students made great art back there. Um, you know, what are you seeing in education? You know, last year you guys had this, you know, huge budget surplus. You were really able to invest in, in education and, and those priorities. But this year, you know, we're looking like we will have a, a few billion less. So kind of how's that going to affect education? And how can we still kind of 
you know, bring our uh, educational system up while maybe not having, you know, quite the funding as in the past? Well, funding per student in California has always been a struggle, and we've always kind of inched forward to get uh, more towards the median level. Last year was definitely a, a good year for education as far as in investment. This year will be slimmer. But I th think one of the things that education institutions are really grappling with from K, not just K-12, but also higher ed particularly, is lower enrollment. Over the years, uh, you really started to see a decline in enrollment um, in K-12. Uh, and this, of course, affects uh, small districts. I happen to have a district that has many tiny, tiny school districts, under 5,000 students. And, and those districts are now uh, getting even closer to 3,000. So it's really going to make it very difficult. And they're going to have to start looking at new ways. Why do we have declining in, uh, enrollment? Uh, not shocking, we have uh, young individuals who are waiting to have children or having less children. Uh, and we also, because of the pandemic, saw many people move out of uh, certain areas. So there could be uh, increased enrollment, maybe in San Bernardino area compared to Orange County because of the affordability. Uh, you look at the colleges, I happen to be the home, I'd call my district now the education, uh, district as I have Cal State Fullerton Titans, uh, the largest CSU in the system. I have Fullerton College, the oldest um, community college and one of the largest, which almost close to 25,000 students, Cypress College, uh, and now Cerritos College. So thousands of students in my district met with the chancellor and they're saying there have been between 25 and 30% down in enrollment. Wow. Um, which was kind of a shock. And, you know, you ask why and uh, two or three things. Some of the uh, students who are really struggling needed to actually go back to work during the pandemic. So they just had to not go to school. Um, secondly, you also see, and this was a little surprised to me, uh, that now because there's so much online um, classes that they can take, they don't necessarily have to enroll in their local community college. They say they're from Fullerton and they, there's a program up in San Francisco that they see that there's maybe more interesting. They can enroll up in San Francisco. Oh, so you might lose, again, a student from one area and they might be going somewhere else. But I think particularly colleges with less and less students on campuses they're going to have to reimagine what do those campuses look like because you have about half the students, students they've taken surveys, they like doing the online. Um, and you can imagine with parking yeah. costs, with childcare, with the time to get to campus, right. why uh, students are wanting to stay in either a hybrid mode or even fully online. Uh, so we see a lot of office space. We see um, Colleges really grappling with, you know, say there was a student center or an online um, tutoring center. Do they have students getting there and how are they going to look at reusing those um, spaces? You know, that's fascinating because it kind of mirrors the job market, right? You talk to a lot of businesses, a lot of employers, and they're finding really hard time, you know, getting people to come into work or to work at all. And it kind of seems like, wow, it's, it's, it's happening in, in higher education too. And of course, who would want to go into a physical classroom if you didn't have to, right? Like, you know, I wish I could have gone to college and law school remotely. 
<laughs> well, I know that uh, Assemblymember Kevin McCarty, he had a bill last year that focused on, uh, of course, his area of Sacramento. But again, even in the downtown buildings there, you see a lot of vacancies. Those right. buildings used to be filled with lobbyists and everybody couldn't mm. get close enough to the Capitol. But again, they're they're back to a certain extent, but are they all coming into their offices? So could those offices be used in some way for housing? And if you think about, you know, an eight-story building, our, our local community college district, um, their building is in a former hospital, nine stories. And they're really starting to look at how could they reuse that space. Right. Uh, and, you know, I don't know that they'll go as far as housing, but could they lease it out? They even asked us if we'd be interested in, in because uh, we have to move out of our uh, state building, which is in Fullerton, because it's out of district, even though I have Fullerton, oh, I only have yeah. half of Fullerton. So, you know, we, we were visiting and I said, you know, is there any space here? And they're like, hey, let us look. I don't know that that's going to happen, but I think they're going to start to see unique partnerships with possibly other programs or spaces being used that way. Man, if you don't get a district office on Main Street USA, I don't know if you're doing <laughs> it right, Sharon. <laughs> um, you know, one thing you said is, is earlier is that, you know, California is like per pupil spending on education just isn't isn't there yet, isn't there with other states. And can you, you know, you've been here for a while, you know, your background's in education. Um, you know, with Prop 98, it seems like, you know, California would have the, you know, the most invested in the students. Can you kind of explain like what what is the mechanism? Like we're forced to spend like what is it, 40% or 50% on 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 schools, but you know, yet it doesn't seem like we're we're meeting kind of the requirements of other states. I think part of it is a little bit of the uh, feast or famine. When the budget looks great, the schools get kind of the windfall like we mm -hmm. saw last year. But when it doesn't, um, you know, like this year, there could be potential cuts. So when you have that up and down, the baseline is what's really important. And what's really uh, important is that local control funding formula per student. I know we did increase it last year, uh, but it's still, uh, you know, if you're in the bottom quarter, the quartile of um, spending on students across the country, uh, you still have to make quite a bit of a jump to get even to the uh, median level. And we're, like I said, inching our way up, but um, it's not that investment that we need from the beginning. So there's always extra one-time funding Saw a lot of that with colleges this last year um, for kind of capital improvements. I know right. many colleges and high schools for building. Uh, there is going to be talk this year about a bond. Um, I know in the last uh, few years, uh, they have tried that. Um, of course, there was a year where it was prop, named Prop 13. That really was not a great ballot title for them. <laughs> and right. that went down. And I think that was a primary as well. Uh, so I think there'll be some more efforts this year. I know Senator Glazer has a bill. Interesting. You know, you've always been a great advocate for veterans and, you know, you had the bill AB 1519 last year regarding veterans. Can you kind of talk about kind of your work with veterans and, and what you're looking to do for this coming session? Well, I was a chair of veterans committee uh, quite a bit ago, almost seven years ago. And uh, so, you know, the investment again in veterans as uh, when they return from tour, we know that one of the things that they uh, just don't always uh, do is access their benefits. So whether it's mental health support, whether it's 
uh, getting appointments, even um, you know, for the, a regular doctor, they're not always um, accessing those. And so sometimes we see very bad outcomes, whether it's mental health issues or even falling into homelessness. There's been quite a bit of work on that area to make more connections, to make sure before they leave, they really have um, the information or the tools that they know so uh, that when they get back into their community, they can know what's available to them. We also see individuals preying on veterans because of their benefits. We've seen some of this with the private colleges. On the other end of the spectrum is uh, veterans um, and who have served our country, who want, which one of their benefits is a, a formal veteran uh, cemetery um, burial with their benefits. And so well over 10 years, we've been working on a Orange County Veterans Cemetery. Wow. And that's AB 1595. I have to look at the number because we've had three different versions of the legislation. But it finally gives us an opportunity to say um, we uh, have almost $25 million in state funding. We have $20 million pledged by the Orange County Board of Supervisors uh, for uh, a veteran cemetery. And we have land donated uh, by the county of Orange, Gypsum Canyon. Now, there's still steps to be made. The land has to be analyzed uh, by the Department of General Services. Uh, but we are hopeful that by somewhere, maybe late 2024, we'll be able to have our first phase of this Orange County Veteran Cemetery in place. But 10 years of a lot of work. Yeah, that's a long time. Uh, you know, you guys just got sworn in December 5th last Monday. People started introducing bills right away. Kind of have have you joined the crowd? Have you gone in there and you know introduced any bills yet, Sharon? We we have not. We did not uh, make a package our first day, but we're looking towards the first um, um, few weeks of January. And I'll be honest, you know, I'm starting my fifth term, and we've done a lot of legislation right. and uh, well over fifty bills signed in my name. And so you start to really become a little bit more selective. You start to think, okay, what is it that I really want to spend time on? And uh, my core values haven't changed. I mean, I'm, we will still pursue housing and homeless type of legislation, mental health. I'm the chair of the select committee on Orange County homelessness and mental health. Um, I'm very interested in relooking at some of education pathways. We talk a lot about career technical education, or we talk a lot about uh, how to get certificates. I think in this changing world, uh, we did a huge amount of effort to say everybody can go to college. And now my question is, does everybody want to go to college and does everybody need to go to college? Right. And I think um, there was a lot of pushback. Well, then students will get tracked, but we need people who can fix cars. We need uh, electricians. We need uh, people that uh, can get a certificate. We look at cybersecurity. Uh, does everybody have to have a degree in cybersecurity or is there a certificate? Uh, so those are the kind of things I'm interested in looking at. Um, of course, uh, the economy, we have a mixed picture that we're hearing as a forecast. And I think we're still going to have um, some real tough times with inflation. We're still going to have um, of course, we see gas prices going down, but we know how fast that can turn. Um, but we also have really, what does the workforce look like? Like we said before, do people really 
need to be in an office? How do we work with the new generation uh, that uh, has a lot to offer, creative, innovative, and do they all need to be tracked into college? And for those don't that don't, how do we keep them from getting into debt in some of these kind of private pay programs that can be extremely costly? Right. You know, the, the holiday season is is fast approaching and New Year's as well. And before you know it, you know, you'll be back up here next year. Uh, what does the holiday season look like for the Quirk Silva family? <laughs> well, like I said, I have four adult kids uh, and they all live. Um, and one is up in Sac- Sacramento working for a water district. Uh, one is in San Francisco, second year of law stu- uh, school at uh, what was Hastings, but now is... Um, Think just the University right. of San Francisco, um, and uh, then uh, one in Fullerton, and so we try to get together. It's very difficult to get all four and their partners together, but uh, we'll do a dinner. We li- happen to live on a street in Fullerton that's called the Sp- uh, Sparkle Ball Street, and just so if your uh, listeners are looking, you can yelp it. Uh, but uh, people literally on about four blocks hang these balls from these what would be they're Chinese elm trees, but they look like Dr. Seuss street uh, trees. So they're very magical. So the whole street's uh, lit up and we have hundreds of cars going uh, by at night. And a lot of times we have a little bonfire out front and uh, just are oh, waving pe- to people. Right. Uh, so pretty, pretty low key. And um uh, we might take a short little trip before we head back in January. Sounds pretty cool. Well, Sharon, thank you so much for joining us and uh, sharing your insights. And we look forward to talking to you next year. And uh, best of luck and happy holidays to you and your family. And same to you and to all your listeners. Happy holidays. All Thanks right. so much. Thanks, Sharon. Have a good one.